this, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peace? Welcome back. It's quarter one and it's episode three of the courtly co-host, the last episode of the first quarter this year. Let's jump into and try to tell us some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing a stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. So if you're new here, hit subscribe, hit follow, hit like. Any of those buttons that do positive things with the algorithm, we will appreciate. So thank you very much. This is episode three, the last one of the quarterly co-hosts for Q1 2022. It's the end of the quarter already, can you believe? Hopefully you've spent this whole quarter listening to Rebound and Safety, watching Rebound and Safety, and emailing Rebound and Safety because this is the first quarter we've launched our consultancy. So I'll tell you some more about it in a minute anyway. Um, but hopefully you've enjoyed listening to Karen. We've kind of summarised her book in a way, but added some context to that. So hopefully this has acted as a as a complimentary content for the book. Before we jump into the podcast, though, just a quick shout out to Paradigm Human Performance. Paradigm Human Performance uh, are human organizational performance experts. They work around the world with some of the biggest brands, helping them improve the way that their humans and their organizations work together. If you're in a position now within your organization that you're looking to embed human organizational performance practices within your workplace, then they are the consultant for you. Also, don't forget to check out the learning organization webinar that they run every other Thursday, um, which you can get access to on the website. All of the website email address phone numbers in the description below. Thank you very much, Paradigm, for being a sponsor of Rebounding Safety. If this year you're looking to improve your professional development, then Project Miletium has a mastermind community for you. Go check out projectmiletium.com. They're running a month off free of charge. Um, it's run by me and Colin. Um, we run weekly calls. We run book clubs. We run philosophical conversations we run quarterly events um it's just a safe space really for you to share your challenges and your problems and get some support and also give support to other people so if you're looking to be a be a mentor and you're looking to be mentored at the same time then this is 100 percent the place for you so we're running a month off at the moment your first month completely free so you can try it for a month and then bugger off if you don't like it and not lose a penny go and check out that in the description below and finally don't forget to check out rebrandingsafety.com there's loads of stuff we're doing and like i said this year we launched our consultancy so if you are looking to build a more holistic approach to your risk management or you're looking for some culture improvement or you're even just looking for some technical support with health and safety um, then please go check out rebrandingsafety.com and click on consultancy there's loads of stuff that risk fluent our consultancy arm can help you with if you're not sure though just drop me a dm or drop me an email james at rebound safety i'm sure we can help you or find someone that can help you without further ado let's jump into the last episode of q1 2022 quarterly co-host with karen hewitt right karen welcome back this is a yes this is episode three i was like is it episode three of our, of our quarterly co-host so thank you very much for coming back and sticking with us for all three episodes I'm coming back for 10. Is that all right? <laughs> Enjoying it so much. Just sign me up. Every quarter now. That's just it. Yeah. Constant. It's now, it's now, you're now the permanent co-host for Rebranded Safety. Um, <laughs> if you could just give us a, a bit of a, a kind of, um, in, in case anybody hasn't listened to one and two, I don't know why they would not. I've listened to one and two because that's the point of it going episode one, two, and three. However, I do know somebody that started watching Game of Thrones at season seven. So, you know, I don't know why you would do that. Um, so people do make silly decisions sometimes. So in case they have, could you introduce us to the concept of what we're talking about over the episodes of one, two, and three, and what we covered in one and two and what we're going to cover today? I will. And arguably the session we're going to do today is probably the one that people struggle with mm. most it's the session on bake and um i love the way you arrange for your dog to come in there to make me smile that's absolutely lovely <laughs> um so bake um so we've talked about build and buzz and now we're going to talk about bake and this is the three-step 
methodology um, in my book, People Power, which helps business leaders and health and safety professionals make health and safety engaging for all and sustainable. So BUILD was the first session. So it was all about what foundations do we need to put in place before we even get excited about talking about health and safety so we can make sure it does stick. So in a way, the BUILD part was part of the bake without us realizing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, if you do a lot of good work up front, it's like designing safety in. When you design engagement in, mm. you're going to make it last. And then we went on to buzz, which was how to create a buzz around health and safety, a topic that is traditionally a little bit boring, not for us, um, but some people think not that again. Um, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm not in a dangerous environment. So how do you make it exciting for everyone, relevant for everybody, get everyone to be involved and for the long term so it just sort of sticks in their heart really and stays with them. And then so moving on now to this session on BAKE. So you've created that buzz. How do you make it stick throughout the whole company to the extent to which health and safety becomes transformational? So not just something somebody's going to do one day and forget the next day really starts to transform the whole business so making that change kind of sustainable isn't it and and getting it uh embedded into the organization like you say yeah spot on no i think this is something that people really really do struggle with is is this point we we see so many don't we of those big campaigns and it's all like go 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 at the beginning everyone's excited there's loads of posters blah 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 we might make some changes um, and do some little things and then it all just starts to fizzle out and then again we have a couple of years later when we go oh that project was a failure let's do another project and then and, and I think a lot of that is <clears throat> without going in into this down this rabbit hole um, you know a lot of that is like these debates around behavior-based safety or human organizational performance or resilience engineering a lot of it in my opinion is that you just didn't embed the change. Like nine times out of ten, we go, oh, behavior-based safety is rubbish. Well, actually, it's probably just that you actually really didn't embed that change. You really didn't do it. You did a bit of a project. You raised some awareness. But actually, you didn't really embed the principles of, of what they were trying to talk about a lot of the time. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Uh, and the same for many other projects. This is a, a really big area that I think a lot of people fall down on. Was that was that something that you put in the book when, you know, were you like, that's got to go in the book straight away? Like you knew that was from your past experience, that was clearly something that you needed to talk about. Yeah, I think it's the biggest issue, how to make it stick. I think when I've worked in large organisations, people have, have even said to me, is this going to be the latest corporate thing? You know, and they've told me stories about previous health and safety initiatives, people that have come in and done them and, you know, but this didn't last, that didn't last. Oh, yeah, we had this great thing going and that didn't last. And they've said it to me in a way that has sort of almost tried to put the idea in my mind that mine wouldn't stick as well, which has made me even more determined to make mine stick. And I think not only that, yeah, never tell me I can't do something. <laughs> just motivates me even more. Yeah. Um, it's also the nature of what we're trying to do. We're trying to change people's beliefs, trying to change people's minds. Health and safety does require a change. We're saying to people, you've always done something this way. How about we try and do it a different way, a safer way? So by that very nature, it's a change project, even if it's only a small one. And it's easy to think up the change, not as easy to make it stick and um, I think there's something that I've actually been teaching in another leadership session around thinking styles that has made me think about how we get people to adopt change and that is um, so the people that go into organizations like me that are all excited about the change their thinking style is about it's quite sort of entrepreneurial creating the vision But the people that actually have to adopt it have got a completely different thinking style. They're more thinking about, okay, we're doing it this way right now. This is the way we've done it. Mm -hmm. These are the processes. They work. What are the new processes we need? How are you going to show me that this is better, that this is going to work? You've got other thinking styles, people that like the data. That thinking style might say, well, hang on, where's the data to back this up? Yeah. 
And then you've got another thinking style, which is around the people. How is this going to impact the people? You know, how they're going to feel. They're already going through a lot of change. So I've learned that along the way as well to try and take people with me and appreciate that not everyone does things like me. Not everyone sort of bursts onto the scene all excited, all singing, all dancing, saying, yay, let's do some of this. <laughs> people are like, oh, God, here she goes again. So, so I've learned really, that's why I talk about change being more evolution rather than revolution, mm. because it comforts s- some more of the, 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 the different thinking styles. And I think last time we might have talked about um, what unites us rather than divides us. We might have talked about that in the first se- session, actually. So I, I tend to use a lot of language that brings people together from different thinking styles. So a bit more neurodiversity rather than just thinking that everybody thinks like me yeah, because they don't. I think that's something a lot, even if you're not, even if you're not embedding, trying to embed or, or trying to start a big, massive change program, like just considering the different, um, the different thought processes and how, and how people think and approach and solve problems. It's something that we're not very good at. And I say that quite a lot on the podcast. That's something we're not very good at. That's something we're not very, turns out we're not very good at a lot, according to me. Um, But I I do think that, you know, I think you just take, just take a real simple example, like how predominantly we communicate um, risk management or safety management um, programs is predominantly written. Um, It's, you know, procedures, risk assessment, all written down. But, you know, that that takes into account only one type of learner. It doesn't consider the people that prefer auditory or or visual or anything like that. Like it doesn't when, when this stuff's sitting around, you can make a video. You, there is apps out there, software out there um, that you can use to communicate your stuff aud- audibly as well. Um, and that's just one tiny example. And then when you start talking about change, you know, those those I think that's where those psychometric kind of profiles can really start to help us and I think we use them a lot but I feel like we don't really use them very well like we just use them and go oh look you're you're Simba out of the Disney the Disney pack <laughs> or uh, I think oh. once I got I got Yoda which I was really happy with um, <laughs> I need to do this test whatever it is yeah, we did it at like an old employee and we um we had uh we, we did the profile and it, it give you your typical ones like you're you're an a a b and a d and whatever and um but then it was like let's put those into these fun categories so you literally had like this list when you clicked on it and it was disney and it was like oh you're simba or you're oh, and i was like that's awesome and we probably spent so much more time going for all of these categories than we did actually talking about like our psychometric our psychometric profiles. Um, but I do think that, you know, that's a, a really good point that you've touched on there. Like how, how are people going to take this change? Are they going to see it as a threat? Are they going to see it as exciting? Are they going to see it as like not really bothered, just another, another kind of program? Um and and also, I think I don't know what your opinion on this, Karen, but how important is it to get in your head that not everyone's going to be as excited about it as you? So, like, you touched on it there. Like, you, instead of you getting really demotivated about it, you took it on as a challenge. Whereas some people might not; they might struggle with people going, "Oh, it's just another corporate change program," or "Oh, it's just a nervous safety program." Like, how important is it in your mind as a person trying to implement that change to be able to go, you know, remind myself that not everyone's going to be mega on board with this or they might look at this a different way? Yeah, I think um, I tend to, to see um, people, people where they are, really. Um, everyone's got their own challenges. I think when I've been in this role before, I've come into it not only is it my passion, but it's been my 100% full-time role. So I'm, yeah. I'm kind of free to get excited about it and passionate about it. And it's important that I am because I'm usually leading the change. But not everyone else, um, they've already got a job to do. So I think, you know, we touched on this last time as well, just recognising the challenges that people have and how do we give them a reason to get involved and I think sometimes we dismiss people because they don't have the same point of view as us you know if someone says we've always done it this way we think oh they must be a negative person 
but actually they're just thinking at it. They're just coming at it from a different point of view and they are probably the people that we can actually rely on to get the change done if we understand fully where they're coming from and what they need. So yeah. I think a big part of the, the bake section, the making it stick, first of all, is leveraging those partnerships we've built up in the build and the buzz. We talked about how can we build partnerships across the organisation, find a win-win, meet them where they are. If we've already got those in place, it's going to be a lot easier then later to go back to them and say, hang on, um, how can we put our content into your processes? How can we create opportunities to make them stick? Mm. Yeah. And and how how in like how early on in the process are you having this conversation? Like I think it's really important that it's it's the same when we're we're planning these these change programs, isn't it? Like we get mega excited about what we're gonna do in the beginning, or we get mega excited about the immediate like quick wins and and we're not so very good at, at these long-term uh, wins i suppose or like how how early on are you planning to to kind of so you know you might have like a change program be like this is a six-month change program right but that's literally just not really the change program is it it's probably like a five-year program like but you rarely see in the plan like Okay, yes, the first six months are going to be intense. The second six months, a little bit less intense. And But then the next couple of years, these are the tiny little checkpoints or touch points or stakes in the ground to, to keep going. Like how often when you're in this process and you're planning this out, are you talking about how we need to think about how this is sustainable? Um, you know, when you're planning this, this you've got a new client, for example, and they're like, well, you need to do all this change. And you're like, okay, first we need to talk about getting this embedded. Or do we talk about, you know, where, where in that conversation does it come in? Early, late? So in an ideal world, do as much as possible early on. And I'll give you an example. Um, so one of the things I recommend in the build phase is to look at, to define the safe behaviours that you need. So if you want to make a change, what does good look like? So to go through all your incidents, to find out what all the problems are, and what would be the right behaviours that you need. So you come up with a set of behaviours. Um, for example, it might be seven good habits um, for safety. Yeah. that you decide that you want. And these become the foundation of your program. Um, and then you need to look for opportunities early on that three years down the line, these will have stuck. So opportunities might be, first of all, look through the company values and the company leadership behaviours and do a little map, a little matrix on how these new safety behaviours tie in yeah. so that people don't see them as an extra, an add-on. They see them as part of the same thing. Because nobody wants an extra, really, if everybody's busy. Mm -hmm. And then also you can look for opportunities to build them into business development processes, HR processes. So you can already be talking to business development, you know, when they're doing bids and pitches. How can we get these seven habits in there? You can speak to HR and say, how can we build a coaching exercise around these seven habits? How can we create the opportunity for line managers to be talking to employees about this, for example, um, personal development conversations, coaching conversations. So the moment you've got the foundational content in there, before you finalised it, you need to check, you can create a story that ties it into the existing company story. Mm. I remember we talked about this last time with um, the Formula One. I think, how do you find a tie-in to the values? Yep, how can you bring your 10 seconds to the car? Yeah, so you almost create your own story, but then you sanity check it. Can you tie it into the corporate story before you promote it? And can you leverage the relationships you've already built with the other parts of the organisation and have early conversations about how they could be, how they could be leveraged, how you could create opportunities for them? And then you've already done some of the, the sticky work that will help to bake them in. Yeah. So that would be the early conversations I would have. 
So a large part of that, uh, uh, Karen, is that you're you're really just getting buy-in, aren't you? You're getting people to own this, and like that that must be probably one of the biggest priorities that we've got because we've spoke about that probably in all three of these stages is getting people you know what does this mean for you and why why should you buy into it It, it's selling it isn't it and then once we've sold it it's making sure that we're continually um providing to them yeah once people have bought in they're bought in and one of the keys to getting them to to buy in is getting them involved in it so Nobody finds it more annoying than having something presented to them and said, here, I've I've done this. Can you do something with it now? Because Mm -hmm. people feel like they're at the end of a process. They don't really own it. Mm. Whereas if you say, we're thinking about doing something like this, what do you think? Can you give us our thoughts? And then you find a way to incorporate their feedback. They already feel like they've they've had, had a hand in it. And it's theirs. People want to be involved at the beginning. So that's why it's really important to spend time at the beginning to get them involved. And then later, they already feel like it's theirs. Yeah. That's that kind of Ikea effect that I think we spoke about last episode as well, isn't it? Which I I love that ever since I kind of come across that. So once you kind of... um... You know, what, what's the next kind of thing you're going to be talking about then? And you, you talked about selling it to them, building a sense of ownership within them. You know, what are the kind of the other, uh, maybe the next key, maybe it doesn't go in a real linear process like that, but one of the the next kind of key points that you'd be thinking about or talking about with, with a client? Well, fortunately, James, my brain does work quite linear process <laughs> like that. So there is a next one in my brain. Good. <laughs> Yeah, the next one in my brain is to to get your super champions, really, which will probably be your health and safety team. And just really give them, um, spend time with them. I mean, I've in the past set up something like a super trainer boot camp to get everyone in a room in the days when you can get everyone in a room, (laughs) maybe a virtual room um, or a large room with less people. Then we could just get in a room and get coffee and lunch, uh, we can dream. It might come back. I'm thinking of doing it actually in June. So yeah. it may come back. I mean, um, without going down a COVID rabbit hole, like England just seemed to be completely like the English government, just like, nope, we're just carrying on. We've had enough. Like even our government's going, no, whatever. You can all get ill now. We're not locking down. Carry on going to the nightclub which I'm kind of okay with, weirdly. Um, I thought I'd be like, oh, no, we should be locking down, but I don't know. Anyway, I'll probably just piss a load of people off by saying that, but anyway. Well, the thing is, it's the same with safety, really. Only hindsight will tell us. Yes, very true. You know, Captain so... uh will come and save us. Yeah, if you're too cautious, you get accused of being too cautious. If you're not cautious enough and yeah. bad things happen, yeah, you're told off for not dumb. being... Yeah, so we'll see. Anyway. But anyway. Back in. <laughs> assuming, yeah, you're just trying to send me off track here, but I think, I'm, I think I've got it. Yeah. Um, so assuming we can get people together in a room, mm-hmm. so talk them through the materials that you want them to deliver um, and the message, but not just that, really talk them, take them through the whole experience so they can experience what other people will experience. So give, make sure they're the first to go through it and not just hand them a set of materials, but really spend the time to give them the skills to facilitate it in a transformational way. So it becomes a personal development for them. They learn a lot of uh, new skills. We talked earlier about psychometric tools. And I actually think I can't get enough of learning those kind of tools to understand people. For me, it's like putting a different set of glasses on, Mm. you know, um, to see people, whether it's thinking styles or um, different personality preferences, communication preferences. There's also a model for learning by Noel Birch, which talks about, um, you know, when people are, they start off being unconsciously uncompetent, they don't know what they don't know. and Then eventually they move through four stages till they're doing it automatically. So there's all these different models that you can use, which is just like a different pair of glasses to see people. And it really helps you develop training that is a real experience for people that will get them 
not just saying, okay, that was a nice day we spent, but that was a nice day and I feel inspired and I'm going to do something different. Techniques like storytelling as well. So really even take a week to give people an experience that is a whole personal development exercise and gives them the skills to really be able to sell this. So I think, you know, taking the time there is really worthwhile as well. Yeah. And there's something you said there about storytelling. I think that's, um, that's just so important. And I think as well, like getting the stories that already exist within the organization, like spend some time, like I would spend some time with, with a customer just walking around, finding the stories that already exist within that workplace. Cause they'll be there. They, they are there. You know, there'll be a story of when Bob did this to solve this. And, you know, we can look at that and go, hmm, that's a really good example of this. And, and off we go. I know Dave Snowden talked about that when I spoke with him, which I'm not sure is out yet. If it's not out, it'll be out soon. If it is out, then obviously it's out. Um, but, you know, that's something that he does, goes around and, and picks out the stories first and then finds the stories that he can use um, to help him embed that, um, whatever change he's trying to, he's trying to bring in. Um, I think that's absolutely vital. The power of story is just so important. Yeah, I love um, doing storytelling. I, I try and use it myself, um, preparing some stories actually right now, but it's really good. People are just real natural when they're telling stories mm. and it allows you to build on what you've already got. So, yeah, um, it, you know, if you can teach people a few storytelling skills as well, they can use that as a mechanism to, to create the change. It's just something that we move away from, isn't it? As we get older, like I, I look at my daughter now and, and you'll be the same with your little and like the life is stories. Everything is songs and stories and everything they learn is, is from songs and stories. And then, and, and that has been throughout, throughout history. You know, we look at like fables and uh, there's a word for like songs that they used to, that, that they would use to tell stories or communicate stuff. I can't remember what they were called. Um, but, you know, we, we've done this for hundreds of years. And then for some reason in corporate, corporate world that we live in now, we've gone, oh, no, everything must be really formal and everything must not tell a story and must just tell us exactly what we need, just pure facts. And uh, stories make, make it relatable and they make it stick with us. And, and I remember... <clears throat> for a long time I've struggled with the concept of of blame or no blame within the workplace and and I'd, I'd started to get to a place where I was like oh yeah I'm, I'm starting to understand it I'd spoke to a lot of people about it and how how where does blame sit and where does accountability sit and all oh, and I was really struggling with it for a long time and um and actually the thing that made it really clear to me was a Sunday morning I was sitting watching his dark material is not the stand up by Jimmy Carr, the, uh, the, the Philip Pullman books it's on BBC. And I put a post about it on LinkedIn and I was just like that. There was one scene in there that for me taught me everything I needed to know about blame. And it was just this little snippet from a story. And I was like, that's done everything that academics and, uh, uh, you know, thought leaders alike have been trying to do for the last two years, trying to tell me or help me with blame. And, Philip Pullman did it in in three lines as part of a story. Yeah, the Disney stories are really good for that as well. And anything yeah. that's sort of on TV, they've got a specific storytelling structure. Yeah. So they, they know how to do storytelling. So it provides really good material. Yeah, yeah. We actually... Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure what I should say this actually. We got given a book for my daughter. Um, I won't say what the book was, um, but we got given a load of books for our daughter. And one of them was a very popular um, story. And, uh, and I was just, I read like the first three or four lines. And it basically was just like a certain person did something wrong and a certain godlike being punished that person for doing something wrong. And and I was just like, that that godlike person's not even considered the context of why that person might make that decision. I don't want to teach Maggie that straight in the bin. Like, but you know, those stories are so powerful. And, and and I looked at it and I was like, actually, I don't like that. That that's a lesson that it might teach my daughter. Um, that we can just go around blaming people and, and so on and so forth. 
So I was like, oh man, I know the power of story. So I just got rid of that one story. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't right, but it was a, it was an impulsive action. But I think you're right. It's just so, the power of stories is just phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. But I think it's something that really people struggle with. Like, how do we, how, how does a safety professional, like how would you use a story to communicate something for safety? Like, is it as simple as, Bob lost his arm when he was at work and this is a, or, or are you a bit more imaginative with that stuff? How, how are you using stories when you're trying to embed this change? Yeah. So I think the great thing about stories is that everyone can do them. They just, not everybody's comfortable doing them. Again, it depends on your thinking styles. Mm. Um, you know, if you're a bit more right brain intuitive, you're probably feel a bit more comfortable with that feeling of going with the flow. If you're a bit more left brain, you'll want to try and script your story and get it absolutely right, which then puts a lot of pressure on you with your memory. So um, what I do is I try and just give people, rather than a process for the story, I just give them some ideas on what makes a story engaging and just a bit of a sort of shopping list really and and they can choose which bits work I'll give them some examples Mm. and then people tend to choose their stories and just give them feedback and we just we just go with it so I think anyone can do it and the great thing is or or I'll wait till somebody will tell a story because when you're running workshops somebody will just suddenly give you this great story and and you'll be like that that's what you did there Yeah, yeah that was a fantastic story could you just note that in your brain now because people do it without even thinking and then what you'll find is they get recycled so somebody will tell that story in another session I can still remember stories from workshops I've delivered mm-hmm. 10 years ago yeah you know and there's stories that I've heard you know I'm preparing a talk now and I'm going to be recycling other people's stories that are just amazing they they travel through time just incredible mm. That's a great way to put it, actually. I'm desperately trying to find the name of the lady. Uh, here it is, Helen. Uh, I didn't want to mention her without, and get her name wrong. Um, but I interviewed a lady called Helen Heenan a long time ago. And um, if you haven't listened to it, I think you'd really enjoy it, Karen. Um, but it, the first one was so good that, well, I had her on and uh, we were talking all about her. She was a pilot, basically. She used to be a pilot. And then COVID happened and she was overnight like no longer a pilot i think it was was it covid or was it? i can't remember something happened and basically overnight she was no longer a pilot like and and it was just like this massive shift but what she had been luckily whilst also being a pilot was a trainer uh for like crm so like human factors stuff and um anyway i always thought i was a really good trainer good like facilitator of a workshop until i spoke to helen and thought wow i'm really bad at this (laughs) because she's just so good um and she blew my mind and she only really started talking about that stuff in the last like half hour of the podcast and i was like right we we need to get you back on so we got back on and spoke about it some more and i remember that just uh you, you reminded me of it like she was trying to do this workshop around this case study which essentially a case study is is a story but the case study was was written in really like formal fashion like an accident incident investigation kind of manner so in preparation for the workshop she basically wrote all of this the incident investigation like a story so she wrote herself a little script out uh and then she took one of her daughters i think it was her daughters um like kids books and she put the kids book there and the, the what the script that she'd wrote inside the book just sat it there so basically she was like i'm going to tell you all the story picked up like narnia or whatever it was you know what I mean? i'm showing my age now that was a book that i was reading when i was a kid I picked up this kind of narnia book and was like it was a, it was a murky day when pilot blah blah took off on the b47 flight to austin texas or whatever it was and um and, and I was just like, wow, wow, that is amazing. One, the the, the work she put into that, but uh, the the forethought to go, I need to turn this into a story because I can get their brains going a little bit more. And I just thought it was beautiful. And I, and I, and I, I just, well, I haven't run a workshop since, but I'm desperate to run a workshop so I can do something like that. 
Yeah, I think storytelling, one of the best leadership skills you can you can get. And there's there's no one way to do it. You no. sort of listen to things and think, what was it about that that worked? Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've, we've clarified that storytelling is really important um, and, you, and you working in a linear fashion. So what's step three then? Is there, is there a step three? Like what's the next thing we're going to be um, kind of thinking of that we need, to, we need to start looking at to embed this change? Okay, so we've talked about designing it in, you know, at an early stage, having those conversations about how you can embed it into the processes. We've talked about um, the people and how we can get, the early adopters, the champions really supported to do this. Um, another thing we can do is to reach out to other parts of the business. So leverage the partnerships we've already got. And this might happen a bit later when your materials are fully developed and see how you can link back from what they're doing to what you're doing. So let's say you've developed seven habits for safety you say, how can we reference them from what you're doing? So there will be other corporate programs going on, other people doing different things. Where are the linkages there? And can they reference your material from their material? Because then it becomes self-sustaining. And let's say you've got the people in quality. They've got a quality program. Yeah. Go and have a little nosy on what they're doing and see mm. if there's any sort of natural linkages there, maybe a bit of win-win you sort of create some linkages between the content yeah i, I think um, that's such a good point isn't it because i think there's so much that we do um particularly when we start looking into well, well particularly when we start moving away from the the real technical sides of safety and we start looking at the the kind of more behavioral sides of of, of safety that's just about creating the behaviors that we'd prefer to have within the workplace which is applicable to quality decision making and finance and and absolutely everywhere throughout the whole organization is it and there, there is inevitably connections um in the decisions we make in that finance will make a decision to cut a budget but ultimately that will impact something else on the shop floor which i think we talked we talked about in one of the other podcasts as well but then also the change we're trying to embed might not just be applicable to safety. It could just genuinely be a operational wide, um, operational wide kind of um, tool or, or, or program. Yeah. And what, what happens? So if you've been really successful in the beginning at taking time to build up those partnerships, people will already know who you are in the business and then they'll be coming back to you. Let's say they're doing, hey, we're doing a corporate induction program or something. Would you want to be a part of this working group? Um, and I've been invited to be parts of lots of working groups so I could add the health and safety element in. So through being really proactive at the start, I then got a lot of invitations to be involved in other things, you know, things like employee experience. You know, the idea is we're trying to integrate health and safety, get health and safety on the table at the start of every conversation, every new project, every new initiative, so that we can make sure we thought about it and designed it in. So there we need to be either, we need to either invite ourselves to the table or be invited. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? When you, um, <clears throat> when you start talking about like who's at the table and we, we, you, you spoke about, I think it was an episode one of this around, you know, identifying stakeholders, you know, who are the stakeholders within this, within this process, uh, within this change and so on and so forth. And it's really difficult. I find that process, like I find we talk about, oh yeah, right. First you've got to identify your stakeholders and we all go, okay, thanks. Cool. We've established that, you know, thanks for the obvious. Um, but actually that's, a really difficult thing to to actually do because you, we just kind of touched on it there that later on when we're trying to embed the change we might expand this into finance but initially we might think that finance are not a stakeholder in this program because it's the health and safety program so it's operational so we need to talk to the operational people um so there, there, there is this kind of fine balance isn't there between having too many people at the table the right people at the table, not enough people at the table. And then like this other one of like the ideal state of like the right people at the table that we need, and maybe a couple of others to have add some different ways of thinking. 
um, or ones that you haven't thought about. And and I think I've, I've used this example time and time again, but I remember when I was working primarily in fire safety in, in the housing sector, and it was just kind of crazy to us that the safety team weren't invited to the design stage of, of the building of these flats or care homes or whatever it was. We were handed the buildings like 10 years later when they were built and said, go and fire risk assess this. We'd fire risk assess it and say, this isn't right. This isn't good uh, because fire risk assessors look at it different from architects. And, you know, we're looking at it from an operational point of view is how can we, how can we run the building safely and, and get everyone out if we need to? Whereas architects were looking at it from a different point of view. So we, we kind of fought and fought and fought and we finally got invited to the design stage and, um, and we we were really lucky to have a, a kind of good builder and a good good architect and and they basically said right if there's any kind of silly little problems that you have with your buildings you need to know now so that then we can work out how to design this in and I was like wow you couldn't have asked me a better question yes I said doormats <laughs> doormats and shoes and they were like what are you on about James and I was like go and ask any one of our housing officers what is the biggest pain in your ass when you're going to a block of flats and they'll say, oh, doormats and shoes. They say, what? Doormats and shoes in the communal area of a blocks of flats, right? Fire service will come in, the HS, whoever, you know, might even be the safety team will come in. And nine times out of 10, they're always told the communal space in a block of flats is your means of escape. Therefore it needs to be sterile, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So nothing there, no doormats, no shoes. But consumers, the customers, don't want to take their muddy shoes off in their property. They want to do it in in our property, in our nice, no carpet kind of uh, communal area where it's our job to clean and not their job to clean. So it's like, you know, this is a, a really silly issue, but like it's an issue. Like we constantly are having this problem all the time you know, knocking on doors and we're peeing off, we're ruining our relationships because we're peeing off our customers because we're constantly telling them, take your shoes inside. And we didn't even get to the architect. Our own team, um, who are like our design team, were like, well, that's probably because we put really nice plush carpets in the hallways of all of our, of all of our, um, all of our flats because we want them to have nice carpets. Why don't we just give them like a massive um, sunken doormat when we go in? Why don't we give them nice wooden hard wearing floors? Why don't we build in a, a shoe rack into the wall or something like that? All we had to do was have people with those operational experiences willing to ask the silly questions in the room at the right time, but more importantly, with the right attitudes as well. Like that guy saying, is there any silly problems? That was the open door for all of us to go, yes. Because so you've got to have the attitude as well, haven't you, to be able to have those those conversations. Like you can have everyone in the room, but if if the boss is like, right, cool, thanks for everyone coming. This is the problem. This is the solution. I've done it, sorted, off we go. Any questions? No, good, thanks, bye. There's no point having anyone in the room, is there? Um, so that attitude and psychological safety is also really important, I would think, as well. Yeah, so that's a really good example of what can be achieved where you get to the table, where, where you get invited to the table. So it's a combination of you being proactive and also you've built those relationships early on. So when it comes to making a big decision early in the process, somebody thinks to invite you in, mm. which is what inevitably happened to me because I'd done a lot of that groundwork. But you can also... You were talking about, you know, you can't invite everybody. So yeah. I would draw up a list of critical stakeholders, which are mainly operational, but then set up some focus group sessions, just sort of free-for-all okay. sessions and invite anyone who's interested. Okay. So we're launching a new program in safety. This is a, you know, um, an open house session for you to find out what we're doing and give your views. And then you might get people turn up, you'll get an idea of who's already engaged. Mm. So you're working proactively on the relationships with the key stakeholders and then you're opening the door to opportunities with other people that you might not have considered. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's a really good idea, actually. So Would, a bit organised and a bit random. Yeah, no, I really like that, actually. And I'd be really keen to see who would turn up. Like, you, you, and, and I think, do you find when you've done that with, with organisations, does, 
is the is is it always consistently like a you know a good number a low number or is it really dependent on the company like do you go into one company and you do those free to free to everybody you know focus groups anyone could turn out and loads of people come in and then you'll go to one and you'll just get one or two people or nobody like is it i feel like it's dependent on the existing culture within the organization uh or, or is it not in your yeah opinion? yeah yeah it's a part partly that partly how you sell it it's like any event how, how you sell it how attractive you make it mm. when it's when it's happening what else is going on but I don't tend to worry too much if there's a small number of people or a large number of people because you can have a really small number of people turn up to anything and have a really quality conversation and you can get some insights that you really didn't expect. Sometimes the psychological safety is better. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it's just good to get some, some views early on and to give people those opportunities because then they can't later say, well, you never told us about this. We didn't know about this, which actually is something I I hear a lot, you know, when you're first sort of delivering these kind of sessions and and saying, you know, we're doing this and somebody will say, I wasn't told about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you say, well, yeah, you probably just missed it, but we did give people some opportunities because people mm. are very busy. So, you know, it's easy to miss anything these days, to miss emails, to miss... Yeah, of course. Definitely. No, I think I think that's a that's a really good point. What would you is there anything else that we've kind of um we we haven't covered yet that that's really important? Yeah. On a, yes. What, what we covered yet. One thing. So okay. how to if you're trying to make it stick, you kind of have to have a measure of how sticky your messages are. You need to okay. be able to show evidence that you've made a difference. This is quite a huge topic um, and different people have different views on it. But I've got a chapter in my book dedicated to how to measure the difference you make. And it talks about what you can directly impact with a program like this and to make sure you manage expectations around what you are going to impact. You know, you can't just suddenly guarantee that your incident rate is suddenly going to go down because there are so many different variables so looking at what the research shows us, what you can directly impact, what kind of leading indicators you might put in place to show you're making a difference. Mm. Just those kind of things, really. Measurement, you know, how to get some quick wins. Yeah. And, and, uh, how, how have you found that? Because measuring of safety is something that we're all still not sure whether we're we, we don't really know whether what we're doing is um, is is measuring safety. So wh- when you're talking about measure, are you talking about measuring the project? But ultimately, your project is trying to increase or improve safety. Uh, ultimately, so what are the kind of what are the kind of things that you would typically see within that within those kind of indicators? If you don't mind me asking. Well, there's all sorts of things you can measure. Typically, um, a program that is aiming at changing behaviours, changing the culture, is really impacting people's perceptions. So that's the thing you can measure through a targeted survey. And the key thing is to do that survey before you start the work, because otherwise you're not going to show enough difference. So you need to have a benchmark. Um, So there's some great research by Barling et al., which shows that when you focus on transformational leadership and safety awareness, you're going to directly impact culture, which will then, in the long term, indirectly impact performance. So you might see the numbers, the incidents go down over a long-term period, like five years or something, but the the fastest indicator is going to be people's perceptions. So there's ways of doing that. Mm. There's also, for example, if you set up some behaviours that you want to get adopted, you can... Um, you can build in mechanisms into the training to look at, you can interview people the moment they come out of the training and ask them how likely they are to adopt these behaviours or to challenge other people not adopting them. So you can use, there's a Kirkpatrick model of training effectiveness, which I use as well. Um, Just, you know, there's different ways you can measure different things. So it's just about being clear on what you're doing 
and how you would measure it. You know, this measures this and this measures that rather than claiming that, well, we're about to do this program and it's going to instantly bring the incident rate down because that's the first thing that management will ask, you know, how long is this going to take to, to bring the incidents down? And how, how are you dealing with that, that question? You, are you, is that when you're, you're coming in and you're saying, well, you know, it's that, it's that longer term process. Eventually we'll start to see an impact in that. Um, so how, how are you, I know you've kind of just touched on it, but when you are bluntly questioned like that, you know, how long is this going to take? How long until I start seeing my accidents and incidents drop, which, which still to this day, whether we agree with it or not, um, is the primary driver of many um, of our listeners, um, organisations and their bosses. Yeah, then what I would do is I'll probably just get on the flip chart and just show them the, um, the Barling et al. research model. So it's based on research and, and explain that, you know, I mean, it could happen that you introduce the safety programme and the numbers start going down, the incidents go down. Mm. And then what happens if they start going up again? But you won't be the only person impacting incidents. There'll be um, a lot of other things going on. There'll be other health and safety things going on, more technical health and safety. There'll be operational things going on. Mm. There'll be training. You know, you can't possibly claim to be the sole influence on that. But if you're influencing the culture, you'd expect it to influence that. So I, I would try and frame that now. If I, I, I have learned um, from my experience that that is a misconception and I'll, I'll frame it straight away in my presentations to the board. I'll say, I'll know what you're expecting is incidents to go down. This is not what the research shows. Let me explain you why. Mm. So I'll get that in people's heads right at the start. Otherwise, you know, they'll be expecting something different and then the budget will be withdrawn for you, for what you're trying to do because there'll be a perception that it's not, it's not working. So I think being really clear on what your indicators are, what your measures are, right up front is really important. Yeah. No, I think that's it. Got to get really clear on what, what good looks like, what bad looks like, and how we're going to measure those. Um, and where's, uh, you know, where is that? Where is the line where we go, actually, this isn't working? Like, how, how, not not to say that you're putting programs in that aren't working, but in your head, do you have indicators that say actually this this approach is not working? Um, do you have those those kind of processes or indicators for you that say this particular tool or this particular approach or or whatever is not working for this client or customer? I'm pretty confident that the approaches I'm using are going to, to work, to be honest. I think it's about um, more a case if you're not getting the support. Yeah. You know, if there's something a bit out of your control, you yeah. know, when you've, you've got agreement from somebody to do something and then they don't do what they say. I was actually thinking about this this morning and the single biggest determinant of success in any health and safety program is support from the highest authority in the business. So from the chairman, the CEO, the MD, whoever it is. Yeah. And in the two large organizations I've worked with, I've delivered two very successful programs, but I wouldn't have been able to do it without absolute commitment from the leaders at the top. Yeah. So I was very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Again, would you, so would you say that they were they were kind of sponsors or are they are they full on involved like because i know there's a bit of a debate there like do we get a do we get a, a senior sponsor or are they more than a sponsor like they've 100 got to be in it there they've got to be involved they've got to be you know boots on the ground or are they literally a we sponsor this here's some resource well they're, they're sort of um they're there when needed really i mean obviously they've got a completely different job but they're prepared to show in what they say and what they do that they value safety above everything else so they're prepared to say it on video yeah when they go out to sites they talk about it um you know because people will place value on what they talk about yeah. they think when well, they're talking about safety a lot it must be really important to them so it's, it's more about them starting to integrate it 
in what they do. Yeah. And some people do that instinctively. Other people, you just have to explain to them what a big impact a little change like that will make. Mm. Mm. Nice one. We've been going just shy of an hour, Karen, and um, <clears throat> I'm sure you've got lots of lots of work to do, same as I have. So, um, yeah, could you just maybe... I think it would be really good to kind of maybe just tie this in a loop and maybe just kind of summarize hopefully what, what people would have taken out of this and what we were trying to achieve uh, from this conversation. Um, and then from there, probably move into a little bit of a, a plug for yourself and the book and, and what, and what it would look like um, if people wanted to do some, some, you know, work with you and get you on board and help do what we've, we've spoke about. Brilliant. It's definitely time to wrap up because the dog's fallen asleep. Oh, yeah, he's gone. Uh, don't say <laughs> Absolutely gone. We obviously weren't exciting enough today. Um, so do you want me to sum up the whole three or just this one? Yeah, I think if you if you sum up like the concept that we were trying to we were trying to cover over the three episodes, that would be really good. Brilliant. OK, you realise my brain was completely wiped over Christmas, but I'm going to try and retrieve it. Why, which is why I'm asking you to summarise it. <laughs> I'm going to try and retrieve it now. So what we've been talking about in this three um, episode podcast is talking about a three-step formula to make health and safety relevant to all engaging and sticky or sustainable i think that's what we all want we don't want to be a fly-by-night we know it's a really important topic but it's not easy to do because not everyone sees its relevance people see it as boring so based on my decade of experience um, doing this kind of thing i have designed a three-phase process there are sub-steps below it. The three phases are build, buzz, and bake. So build is how do you build the engagement in at the start? What do you need to do to set the foundations for success to make health and safety engaging and sticky? And then buzz, how do you create a health and safety message that really changes the way people see health and safety sort of blows a sort of tornado of fresh air into it and makes them see things differently and act differently. And then finally, bake. How do you sort of bake it into culture, processes, people's minds, so that it really sticks even when you're not around? And to the extent that it starts to become transformational health and safety and really sort of starts to seep into other parts of the business and transform other parts of the business. So really it's a whole people first strategy. So build, buzz, bake. So it's in my book, People Power. And if anyone is interested in finding out more, you can buy People Power, transform your business in the era of safety and well-being. I've got it here, actually. I'm just going to show it off one more time. Mm -hmm. So you can get that at any bookshop. Um, if you want to find me on LinkedIn, Karen J. Hewitt on LinkedIn. The J is very important because otherwise you might find a different Karen Hewitt. Awesome. And, it, and if, um, if people are going to kind of uh, do some, some work with you, is this a kind of what we spoke about is a, bit, is a good insight in what that would look like, that, that process of, um, and, and, and that kind of relationship that you would have? Yeah, so what I can do is help people with that process, make it real for them, yeah. um, and also look at uh, a toolkit, really, a sort of a, a deeper toolkit for the buzz section, so more of a communications toolkit. You know, some of the stuff we've discussed around language, storytelling, behavioural change, I can provide a, a training toolkit that sort of sits underneath the buzz section as well. Yeah, nice, nice. Awesome. Well, we'll put all the links to, to everything in the in the show notes and description and that below so everyone can, can go and get that. And thank you very much, Karen, for being our quarterly co-host uh, for Q1. Yes, Q1. And uh, and I hope you've had a good new year so far. And um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll see much, much more of each other in the future as well. But thank you very much. I enjoyed the, our three conversations. Thank you, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm honoured and humbled and um, hope we do get to speak again soon. For sure. Okay, peeps, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Karen. Hope you enjoyed all three episodes with Karen. Hope you have got something out of it. Hope it's acted as that kind of complimentary uh, content to the book. 
Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance um, if you're looking for some human organizational performance expertise to help you within your workplace. Don't forget to check out Project Meletium if you're looking to improve your professional development or your team's professional development. There are loads of stuff that we can do, but ultimately it's a safe space for you to develop and, and get some support. And don't forget to check out finally Rebound and Safety. We've got loads of stuff we can help you, whether you need to market your brand to the industry of safety professionals or whether you're looking for some support um, from a consultant. There's loads of stuff we can do to help you. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. I shall catch you next week. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.